Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. New chapter today. Now, again, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is in chapter 1. I believe we covered that week before last. We were at the conference in Arizona this past weekend with Pastor John Higgins. And that was a great conference. Really enjoyed reuniting with some of our like-minded, kindred spirit pastors there from the Midwest. It was a great time, good, refreshing fellowship, ministry. But week before last, we covered 1 John 1, 9 that uh, talks about the fact that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as I mentioned in that message, that is a verse that I cling to with every fiber of my being. Because even though I'm saved, born again, filled with the Spirit, forgiven, I'm still imperfect. I still sin. Not because I want to, but we haven't been perfected yet. And so as we move now into chapter 2, John continues on with this theme uh, regarding not sinning. Let's read verses 1 through 5. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, I find that really kind of humorous in a way. He says, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. And if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The test of knowing him. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now this is the apostle of love, but he's got some strong words here for us. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And we, our New Year's message for this year was, in Christ in the new year. How many of you remember that? And so here John's talking about, this is how we know that we are in him. There's a big difference between being a religious person, having an awareness and understanding of the reality of God. There's a big difference between that and actually being in Him. And when we are in Him, He is in us. Let's pray. Father God, we ask You to bless this time in Your Word this morning. Please open up our hearts and minds to the understanding of this passage that we might continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he opens up this chapter, although there weren't any chapters originally. The chapters were put in there to make it easier for us to memorize and to study Scripture. But he says, my little children, or uh, one translation says, my dear children. This is obviously a term of endearment and affection. And John is writing to his beloved spiritual children. And since you and I, everyone here today who has received Christ as Lord and Savior, we would fit into this same category. We are the Lord's beloved children. And you know, it's important to be mindful of that because the enemy loves to try to heap condemnation on us and convince us that God doesn't like us, He doesn't love us, that we're, you know, just on the bottom rung of the food chain in God's kingdom. 
And we need to be reminded that from God's perspective, we know that we are imperfect. We know that we're sinners saved by grace, but we are His dear children, His beloved children. Jesus referred to us in that way also in the Gospels. So, that being said, we would be included as recipients of this letter. When John is writing saying, my little children, my dear children, that's you and I as well. He says, I write to you. And then the first chapter, of course, is his eyewitness account, his eyewitness testimony. He was there. He said, we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. He's the real deal. And now he's saying, I'm writing to you, as he said in chapter 1, that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is in the Father and in His Son. Now he's writing so that you may not sin. May not or will not. And so like any loving parent, and that's the, the perspective from which John is writing here as a spiritual father, like any loving parent, John's desire for his dear children is that they would walk in righteousness. And he's really laying out for us here the, what should be the goal of every believer, and that is to not sin. Unfortunately, so many times the gospel is presented in such a way that the emphasis and the focus is on what we can get from God, right? The prosperity message, the, the health and wealth gospel and these types of things and uh, self-help, you know, positive self-image, all that stuff. But at the heart of the message is that in Christ, we are set free to not sin. Now, you might think, well, gee, it seems like being able to sin would be a more free way to live. In fact, there was a term that was coined in the 60s called free love. How many of you remember that? Free love. Well, that kind of love ain't free, baby. There's a lot of prices to pay for that. STDs, emotional, mental, psychological damage, all kinds of things. That's not free love. Free love is the love that God offers us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Being saved by grace through faith. Freedom not to sin means that you're no longer in bondage to your flesh. No longer forced to follow the desires of the flesh. You've been set free to live a higher life in Christ. And so John says, I write to you so that you may not or will not sin. Now, he's not writing this because the, his message is, if you do sin, you're going to lose your salvation. He's writing it because he knows the damage that sin does to us, even as believers. Before we receive Christ, our sin is going to send us to hell for all eternity. Our sin is going to result in eternal death. But after we come to Christ, our sin will separate us from the Father. It will hinder our fellowship and our relationship with Him. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Paul writes, Therefore do not let sin reign or rule in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members, the parts of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Some people think that becoming a Christian is the kiss of death. 
It's all over. No more fun. No more partying. Only drudgery. Having to be a good person. Isn't that horrible? Can you imagine? Boy, and I tell you, in today's world, many people do view being a good person as a bad thing. The Bible predicted there would come a time when people would call evil good and good evil. Guess where we are right now? We're there. And man, have you been following the latest abortion stuff going on on the East Coast? I'm telling you, folks, it's getting me really stirred up. We have put up with this garbage long enough. We have taught... Ooh, I'm getting chills. I mean, abortion is murder, pure and simple. And I'm sorry if, if there's anyone here today who's had one. God loves you. He forgives you. And you've been lied to. And if I hear one more person say women's health, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because that is the biggest pile of you-know-what that ever came down the pike. It destroys women's health. Women have died having those abortions. I'm telling you, that's the most horrible lie from the pit of hell I have ever heard. Women's health. And now, did you hear the governor of Virginia? Now he's been outed as a KKK guy. But it's semi-okay because he's a Democrat. See? Have you noticed that? If he wasn't a Democrat, he would have been gone already. But he's still fighting it. He's trying to hang in there and stay. His college yearbook picture has a picture of, and they don't know who's who. There's two guys in the picture. One of them's him. One's in a KKK outfit and one's in blackface. If he was from the other party, he probably would have been lynched in the public square already. But he's the guy who came. They had this interview about this law that they tried to pass in Virginia. It failed by one vote to abort a baby when the mother's already in labor. And then if the baby survives, he said, we will help it to rest comfortably, resuscitate it if necessary, and then the mother and the doctor will have a discussion about what to do with it. And by the way, there are very reliable reports that this kind of stuff's already been going on in various states. In fact, our former, former president, Barack Obama, supported the very thing in Illinois when he was a senator, a state senator in Illinois, allowing babies that were unsuccessfully aborted and born alive than to put them away in a closet and let them die. This nation is living on borrowed time. We have got to step out. We've got to speak out. We cannot allow this to continue. This is the most horrible form of evil. You've got to start calling your representatives and telling them that this is horrible. It cannot be allowed. In fact, Albuquerque is the third tri trimester abortion capital of the United States. There are things that I would like to do that would probably prevent me from ever being up here again. I would have a prison ministry. But this cannot continue, folks. It's got to stop. I mean, this idiotic world that we live in. You can go to jail for harming a dog or a cat, but you can kill a baby all day long. 
Well, that's not in the message, but it's in my heart. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Folks, becoming a Christian is not the kiss of death, it's the kiss of life. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, isn't that interesting? Like I said, we've been set free to not sin. We're not under the law. The law dictates every single thing you must do. God's law is perfect, converting the soul. The problem is we can't keep it perfectly. And so we're under grace, which means we're free not to sin, but when we do stumble... If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in him, we're talking about in Christ, being in him and he being in us. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Oops. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, if we were to stop right here, we might all be rather concerned about our standing with God, Right? But there is good news. Again, I want to point out something. When we read these kinds of scriptures in the New Testament, there's a differentiation between living a willful, deliberate lifestyle of sin. We're just day in and day out. You make no effort of any kind to be holy, to be righteous, to not sin. You just go for it. And by the way, more and more and more churches that's being promoted that you, you don't have to live a holy lifestyle to be a Christian. It's called liberty, you know, license, freedom to do whatever you want. No, that's not the freedom that we have in Christ. We have the freedom to not sin. So he says, if anyone does sin, still in verse 1, I write to you that you may not or will not sin. And then right after that he says, and if anyone sins, because he knows, John knows, as a spiritual father to his dear children, John knows that in spite of his best efforts to encourage them otherwise, from time to time, his kids, God's kids, will blow it. But there's a difference between living a lifestyle of unbridled sin and living a life where you are daily dying to self, crucifying the flesh, taking up your cross and following Christ. And yet, even when we do that, we still stumble, don't we? James writes that we all stumble in many ways. Romans 7.15. Boy, I love Paul's transparency. Paul is the same one who said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Does that make you wonder, if Paul was the chief of all sinners, what does that make me? Chopped liver? But he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever do something stupid and then ask yourself, why did I do that? What am I doing? For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate... That I do. Now Paul goes on to give us 
the answer, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who is able to help us. But that is a real struggle that every believer faces. The non-believer doesn't face that struggle because they don't have any desire to live a godly life. Their entire purpose is to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, knowing, as John did when he wrote this, that believers sometimes still sin. Sometimes. Hopefully, it becomes something we do less and less the longer we walk with the Lord. But we will struggle in some capacity for the rest of our lives until we see Jesus face to face. But it's extremely important to also know that there is a remedy for this predicament. Here's the remedy. We have an advocate with the Father. Parakletos. It literally means one summoned alongside a helper or patron in a lawsuit. John is the only New Testament writer who uses this word, and it's translated with regard to the Holy Spirit, the, the word helper in John 14, 6, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and John 16, 7. Parakletos, the helper, or in this case, the advocate. You could say, we could translate this as we have a defense attorney to represent us before the Father 24-7, and that defense attorney is Jesus Christ. When we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we are pronounced forgiven, redeemed, bought back, purchased back out of death into life, out of darkness into light. We're forgiven, redeemed, saved, set free in the name of Jesus Christ. However, when we as God's dear children sin against Him, our relationship with Him is temporarily strained, hindered. And so, and this harkens back again, I think we talked about this last time too, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And Peter said, no, no, you're not washing my feet. I'm too humble for that. False humility. And Jesus says, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. Okay, do the whole deal. I want a mani-pedi. I want a, a wash, a condition, and a blow-dry. Wash me all over. Jesus says, Peter, you don't need that. Because Peter was washed by his faith in Christ, even though Christ had not yet died on the cross, Peter had already acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He, Jesus said, you just need your feet washed. Because as we go through this life, we walk through this world, our feet get dirty, spiritually speaking. And that's what this is about, foot washing. We no longer need to be saved. That happens one time. You only need to be born again once. But, John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. As sinners saved by grace, we need a mediator, a negotiator, to help restore our fellowship with the Father. And who is this advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus has so many titles and so many names. I love this. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Has that, that knight sound to it. Mighty warrior, right? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Like, uh, what was it, King 
John the Lionheart, was that the one? Richard. Richard. King Richard the Lionheart. It has that sound to it. Jesus Christ the righteous. And so when you've committed an act of unrighteousness, who are you going to call? The righteous one. Jesus Christ the righteous. As the righteous one, Jesus is able to effectively mediate our forgiveness and restoration with the Father. That's why we read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whether it's coming to God the first time in order to receive the free gift of salvation, or if it's coming back to Him repeatedly for forgiveness and cleansing, Jesus is our mediator, our advocate, our helper. 1 Timothy 2.5 there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. One mediator. People will say that's, that's narrow-minded, that's bigoted or whatever, you know, dogmatic. You know, personally, I believe there are many pathways to God. You can personally believe whatever you want. It doesn't make it true. That's not fair. Really? How about no way? How about no mediator? How would you like that? God has very graciously provided us with a means to get to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm very thankful that He did. One God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But what does that tell us? Well, then you can't get to Him through Buddha, Mohammed, Joseph Smith, any of the others, Krishna, Confucius, Shirley MacLaine? Oh, that's a scary thought. Wherever I could get to through Shirley MacLaine, I wouldn't want to go there. And even though she's beloved by millions, I wouldn't want to go through Oprah either. Hebrews 9.15 He is the mediator, Jesus, of the new covenant. We celebrated the new covenant this morning with our communion. He's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, his death, for the redemption, the buying back, the purchasing back of our souls from the clutches of Satan and a destination of eternity in hell. The redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Under the first covenant, one sin and you're toast. Now they did have temporary sacrifices to hold people over till Jesus came along. But the new covenant we read in the New Testament is a better covenant because it rests entirely upon Him and not upon us. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Remember Pastor Chuck saying, well, talking about, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, once saved, always saved, election, predestination. Someone said to him, well, what if I'm not called? Chuck said, well, receive Christ and find out. <laughs> if you receive him, you'll find out that you are called. Those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's what it's all about. This life is temporary. This life is short. How sad that so many so-called preachers, teachers, churches 
are focused on the here and now, what you can get in this life, prosperity, becoming a better you. Well, you know what? If you're a young earther like me, if you believe we've been here about 6,000 years, mankind has 6,000 years under his belt or her belt, their belt, to become better. How are we doing? <laughs> Not too good. It's the eternal inheritance that we should be focused on. Spending eternity in paradise with our God, with our Creator, with His Son, Jesus Christ. We must never forget that it's only and always about Jesus. We can't get to the Father without Him, and we can't remain in right standing before God without Him. John 14, 6, we all know this one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's so simple. Jesus didn't give us any mumbo-jumbo or hocus-pocus or voodoo magic. He lays it right out there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, if you want to go to the Father, if you want to know the Father, if you want to have a relationship with the Father... We, he's told us how to get there. Let's move on to verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means atoning sacrifice. He made atonement for our sins. He paid the price. Propitiation means satisfaction. God's holiness, God's perfection requires payment for sin. We have a debt we can never pay. The wages of sin is death. Christ paid that debt for us that we could never pay. And that's been a great definition for forgiveness in general that I've used through the years. I've heard other people use it. That forgiveness is paying the other person's debt for them. When you forgive someone, maybe, maybe you're the innocent party. Maybe you didn't do anything. And maybe you're waiting for them to apologize to you. But Christ set the example while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Amen. You can help set somebody free who's in bondage by forgiving them. Now, sometimes it may be appropriate to say, you know what? You probably didn't even mean to do what you did. You know, it hurt my feelings, it offended me, whatever. But I want you to know I forgive you. Now, in certain situations, that not, might not be appropriate. I had a guy once many years ago who had an offense with me, and he came up and wrapped his arms around me and said, you got to pray for me, brother, because I hate your guts. <clears throat> that didn't work too well. At least not for me. Sometimes it may be a matter of you just going before the Lord and saying, Father, help me in Jesus' name, I want to forgive this person. I give whatever it is, anger, resentment, bitterness. I ask you to forgive me. I give it over to you now, and I just, I forgive. I choose to forgive them. So you have to ask for discernment, wisdom from the Holy Spirit. What's the right way to approach it? Do I talk to them? Do I just talk to God about it? Different situations require different efforts. But forgiveness is paying the other person's debt, and Christ paid your debt, and he paid my debt, and he's the only one who could ever have paid the debt of sin for the entire world. Only one. 
the perfect sinless Son of God. And again, as a good father or shepherd, John is reminding his children of that which they already know. These are things I'm sure that he has already taught them. So why would he do that? Because, again, we take communion. Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Because all of us, as God's dear children, have a tendency to forget. Now, when I say forget, I don't mean entirely, but many times we get so focused on everyday life, the situations that we deal with, the problems that we face, and even the good times, that we tend to forget some of the really important, deep spiritual truths that God has imparted to us. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul writes, and this is the English Standard Version, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Paul is saying, he's already preached it to them, they received it, they're standing on that gospel, but he says, now I'm going to remind you. Oh, you know, years ago, I remember, I've probably shared this before, but when we made our affiliation with Calvary Chapel official, my connections went all the way back to the early 70s, but our church began in 1989, and we officially affiliated with Calvary Chapel, I believe, in 1991. And I had somebody complain to me, they had an axe to grind with the Calvary Chapel ministry in general. All they do is study through the Bible. I've already done that. Well, good for you. But guess what? You're going to have to do it for the rest of your life. And you still won't learn everything there is to learn, and you won't know everything there is to know until you see Jesus face to face. So Paul is reminding them. 2 Peter 1.12, we talked about this in our studies recently in First and 2 Peter. Peter was very focused on reminding. He says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you. So Peter says, if I don't remind you, I'm being negligent. You know, whatever our talents, abilities, skills might be, if we stop doing something for a period of time, it's going to take some reminding, isn't it? Some practice and some effort to get back where you were before. Whether it's athletics or music, art, whatever it might be. We need to be reminded. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, Peter says, though you know and are established in the present truth. And so, again, you might hear me say some of the same things over and over again. What's the matter with this guy? Doesn't he have anything else to say? And we talked about John when he was older and they took him to the front of the congregation. Every week he'd say the same thing. Little children love one another. John, you say that every week. Don't you have anything else? When you start doing that, I'll give you something else. I mean, don't we all know and understand the value of repetition? How do we learn something? By repetition. Sometimes, maybe that's not exciting, titillating. Woo! Didn't he say that verse last week and the week before? Well, <laughs> if it was good enough for Paul and good enough for Peter, it's good enough for me. Even though 
You know them and are established in the present truth, Peter says. I will not be negligent to remind you. Let's move on. He himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And by the way, this is the same guy that wrote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And so Jesus' atoning sacrifice was and is sufficient to pay the price for the sins of every human being for all time. Uh, that gives you a little insight into how precious the blood of Christ is, doesn't it? But it's only for those who accept his payment, only those who accept his payment who will receive the benefits. Forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. Christ's payment is sufficient but you have to plug into it, apply it to your life, receive it. Verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him. And that's important, by the way, to know that we know him, isn't it? Sometimes we Christians use that expression, we know that we know that we know, right? That's the comfort, that's the peace, that's the security we have in Christ. We know that we know that we know that we've been forgiven of our sins, that we're born again, that we have received the precious gift of eternal life. When Christ has done that work in your heart, you know that you know that you know. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Now this first phrase, by this we know that we know Him. In the Greek you could literally translate it like this. By this we come to experientially know that we have experientially known Him. And by the way, remember in the Bible, to know him means to have intimate relationship with him. It's used also, that word to know, between a man and a woman. Joseph did not know Mary until after she'd given birth to Jesus. To know someone is to have intimate relationship. By this we know that we have intimate relationship with God. So we talk about experientially know that we have experientially known him. Our faith is more than just head knowledge. It is a heart knowledge as well. And as we experience a change of heart, it should result in a change of actions as well. Here John provides his little children with a down-to-earth, practical, pragmatic gut check, if you will. How does one know if one knows God? Is it just a matter of warm, fuzzy feelings? According to John, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Wow. That eliminates a lot of people, folks. I hate to tell you. Because there's a lot of people out there who claim to know him or to believe in him at least, but they don't have any intention of keeping his commandments. Matthew seven sixteen through 21. In fact, it cracks me up the way these politicians, when it's convenient and fits their narrative, they start quoting Jesus and quoting the Bible. Have you known that? And twisting it and taking it all out of context. Matthew 7, 16. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Well, I'm really a good tree on the inside. If you're a good tree on the inside, that'll manifest itself in good fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's something I'm not interested in. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. This is Jesus talking, remember? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Just like I said, not everybody who claims to know him really does. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice verse 21, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So Jesus is confirming what John is telling us here in 1 John. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Jesus says basically the same thing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Forget religiosity. Forget warm, fuzzy feelings. Those are great when they happen. We talked about this a couple weeks ago too, I think. Sometimes you have warm, fuzzy feelings in your marriage. Sometimes you don't. Forget all that stuff. The question is, do you obey God or not? Do you obey God or not? Again, we're not perfect yet. We won't be until we see Jesus face to face. But what is your basic desire, determination, lifestyle? Do you get up each day determined to obey, obey God? And then sometimes you don't make it. Or does not, not even come into your mind the idea that as a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, my number one goal in this life should be to not sin. I write, my little children, I write this to you that you may not or will not sin. And then some might say, well, yeah, I want to obey him, but I don't know what he expects of me. How do I know what he wants? Is this enough for you? This will keep you busy for a while. Anybody that says they don't know what God wants doesn't read their Bible. It's that simple. And if you don't read your Bible, then more than likely, you're not going to obey Him because you don't know what He expects. And the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds as we feed upon the Word of God. You're going to begin to take your cues from the world. That's why nearly half of the church now embraces gay marriage. Nearly half of the church embraces abortion. All these other activities that don't come under the category of not sinning. But you've got a mass of humanity out there that though they may claim to believe in God, they don't obey Him. They're taking their marching orders from the world and from the prince of this world. Oh, well, the Bible, that's all subject to one's own interpretation. Really? It means different things to different people. It was written 2,000 years ago. Things are totally different now. I guarantee you, anything you see going on in the world today, you can find it in the Bible. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. There may be new twists, but it's the same old stuff. It's the same old sin. It's the same old devil. So, this next section, Papa John, John the Apostle, really turns up the heat. I'll just read this verse and then we'll close and we'll pick it up here next week. He who says, I know him, I know him, 
and does not keep his commandments. I hate to leave it on this note. It's pretty strong. And does not keep his commandments. This is powerful. This, I told you John was going to give us a gut check. A practical, pragmatic, down-to-earth gut check. And again, that is... It's either the positive aspect or the pitfalls of studying through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We don't get to skip the parts that make us uncomfortable. You see? You can find a lot of churches where that's exactly what they do. We don't touch on anything controversial, anything negative. But this is how we're going to have to leave it for today, which means you need to come back next week so you can be uplifted again. <laughs> Hopefully. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so this carries the connotation of the old adage, actions speak louder than words. And see, John leaves no room here for a gray area. That's what everybody's gravitating towards today, aren't they? The gray areas. No black and white. Well, I'm telling you, it's getting more and more frequent. It's almost every day now where I have some kind of confrontation with someone simply because they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to discuss anything. They don't want to consider anything. There's no logic. There's no rationality. And if you have, if you have strong beliefs, that's offensive. Everybody needs to be wishy-washy and non-committal. That's what's expected in this world today. But guess what? You can't be a follower of Christ if you are wishy-washy and non-committal. If you want to stand firm for Christ and for the truth, I'm going to ask you to stand up right now. Let's pray. Father God, your word says, Let God be true and every man a liar. And that's becoming more and more true every day. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that you've made everything so clear, clear cut. No gray areas, black and white, right and wrong. And Lord, we do acknowledge that we fall short. We are far from perfect, and that's why we so desperately need a Savior, a mediator. And we thank you that you have lovingly, mercifully, graciously sent to us Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the Savior of our souls, our mediator, our advocate, our defense attorney. Thank you, Father. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you lovingly represent us before the Father. And you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins to you. And we surely do that even now. I'm sure every person in this room will agree with me. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And we ask you to give us the strength we need to stand firm in these last days. Lord, and to show people your love. Lord, we know that we're not here to show them your wrath. That's your job. We know your wrath will come because your word tells us that it will. But in the meantime, help us to be representatives of your love. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. Help us to be kind and gracious even to those who persecute us, who slander us, who mock us. Help us to love them, to walk in forgiveness, but to not compromise one iota. And Father, for anyone here today who maybe is not in right standing with you right now, 
that you would draw them to the front as we close, that they would come for prayer and commit their life to Christ. Or if need be, rededicate their life to Christ. And for those who might need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they need power, they feel weak, they feel ineffective, unable to serve you the way they desire to do so, we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. Just fill them with your Spirit today, Lord. Uh, those who need healing, whatever it might be, God, we know you're here and you are mighty, you are powerful, you are awesome. We ask you to do a mighty work in these closing moments. We give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.